As I mentioned, our text is the 19th and 20th verse of Matthew chapter 28. We'll be referring to other verses of Scripture as well. Let's ask the Lord to bless our study of His Word tonight. Our gracious Heavenly Father, You have given us Your command, and whatever You have commanded is ours to obey and to compel and teach others to do also. We pray that we'd always do it with grace and with Your Spirit's power. We know the flesh profiteth nothing. Lord, we, we want to know what your word has to say, and we pray that you lead us and guide us in all truth. You've promised to do just that, and we want to hear from you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our statement of faith states in the 15th part of our articles, the statement of faith says, Baptism is an ordinance of Jesus Christ, obligatory upon every believer, wherein he is immersed in water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost as a sign of his fellowship with the death and resurrection of Christ and of remission of sins and of his giving of himself to God to live and walk in newness of life. It is a prerequisite to church fellowship and to participation in the Lord's Supper. In the New Testament, the candidate was taken to the water, not the water brought to the candidate. The candidate was placed in the water, not water put on the candidate. So we believe in the immersion is only answering Christ's command of baptizing and symbolizing the heart of the gospel message, the death, burial, and resurrection. We believe in the New Testament order of baptism and the Lord's Supper. New Testament Christians were baptized before taking the Lord's Supper. Well, a principle that we find in the New Testament is a, this principle is a connection between salvation and conversion with baptism. Sadly, the two are often confused, the one for the other, or both sometimes are equated as being one and the same, and nothing could be further from the truth. One is a picture or a symbol of the other. Conversion, as we have studied, is a powerful, miraculous work of the Holy Spirit within the soul of a person, while baptism is only an outward picture or symbol of what has taken place in that heart by that work of regeneration. My wedding band is a, a symbol that I gladly wear. It's a symbol of my marriage and the vows and the oneness that I share with Kathy almost 35 years now uh, that uh, we have been married coming up June the 20th. Aren't you proud of me that I, I remember June the 20th? And uh, our, the twins, I think their due date is the June the 20th. Uh, I don't know if she'll make it to that, that place, but that far. I'm not sure she would like to be delivered before then, but it's kind of exciting to think that they, they might be born on our, our uh, anniversary. But that, that ring, every time I look at it, reminds me of the vows I made right here 35 years ago. But it is not my marriage. That ring is not my marriage. Uh, it is not even my love. It is a symbol, an outward symbol that, of that oneness spiritually and physically that we share as husband and wife. I am married without it, but I gladly wear it because of what it represents. Baptism in the Bible always follows conversion. One thing we see over and over again through the record in the book of Acts, they that gladly received his word uh, followed him in baptism. On the day of Pentecost, they repented and were saved, and then they were baptized. We see the Ethiopian eunuch, when the light of the gospel flooded his heart, and he realized that he was a sinner and turned to Christ and asked, could he be baptized? It was after he had had that converting work of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit within his heart that uh, Philip told him that he indeed could be. The Philippian jailer, after beating the Apostle Paul, and you know that, that story of how he put him in prison, and at midnight the earthquake came, and after he witnessed all those miraculous things, and Paul and Silas had not uh, run away, he said, What must I do to be, to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And then the Bible goes on to give us the record that he willingly and, and gladly followed the Lord uh, in baptism. Uh, converted and then gladly obeyed the Lord's teaching here in our text to be baptized, symbolizing the death, burial, and resurrection of our old life to a new life in Christ. That's why we reject the baptism of infants. Now, we're going tonight to uh, introduce what the Scripture teaches about baptism and give uh, some uh, 
characteristics of why the Lord chose this particular sign or symbol to represent that work that has gone on in our heart. But I want to, as the Lord leads, to uh, give some other areas that might come to mind. For example, there are brethren who believe in the baptism of infants. And one of the reasons that we reject that teaching, not only is there not a single instance in the Scripture where an infant was baptized, uh, while we reject that is of, of infants, is because not only being unscriptural, which is why we would reject anything, there's no precedent in the scripture of it. Uh, only willing participants who had professed openly their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ were candidates. But we must admit that baptism is clearly and strongly taught in the Bible. It is not something that's uh, an option if you want to or don't want to you know the, the scripture we see the pattern beginning here in the gospel of matthew and throughout the new testament this pattern that our lord set by example and is by commandment it is an openly uh, strongly and openly taught in the bible as an ordinance given by our lord to his apostles here as a pattern for all believers who would come after them there are two ordinances in the New Testament Church of Christ, uh, or rites, R-I-T-E-S, given to picture the work of our Lord. And both of them point solely to the, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and His glorious work for us. The first there is believer's baptism, as we're discussing, and the other is the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. These were given by our Lord to His apostles, who to be instilled in his church as part of what his church would practice and carried out until he completes his church. Both these ordinances give a, a living, visible object lesson. And that's exactly what they do. They are a sermon in, in form, a tangible object lesson of the life and the work of our Lord, showing his saving work and, and the new living relationship that we have in him through the salvation that he has brought to us. Both of these ordinances, rightly understood and rightly performed, bring great glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Sadly, they both have been perverted and changed from what uh, the Scriptures teach for them to be. Both have been uh, changed or even substituted as Israel did with the Old Testament ordinances given to them to actually substitute for the atoning work of the coming Christ. The writers, the New Testament writers tell us that the blood of bulls and goats and the rite of circumcision never saved, were not given to save, and yet by the time of our Lord's ministry on earth and long before, they had been substituted, and when the Lord presented himself as the Savior and the Messiah to, to the people, they said, we're, we're Abraham's seed, by meaning we've been circumcised, we've been born as Jews, we have gone through the Levitical sacrifices, and we're leaning on those for our salvation. We do see that those who were saved in the, in the New Testament, though over and over again, willingly and gladly obeyed the teaching of our Lord to be baptized. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, the Apostle Paul writing to Corinth to correct many doctrinal problems in the church there, uh, says, For by one Spirit we are we all baptized into one body. And Paul is referring to the physical baptism of believers here. There is a spiritual baptism at conversion where we're placed into Christ. Of course, that word, the Greek word, and we're going to study that, not tonight, but the Greek word baptizo, the English word baptism, is a transliteration of the Greek word baptizo. The translators, instead of translating it, if you're translating a language, you come up with a word in the second language that means what the word in the first language says. Does that make sense? But when they came to baptizo, instead of saying immerse or to plunge or to bury, the translators decided to carry over the Greek word into the English language, and they just made an English, they Englishized the word. It's not even a word, is it? I've just made up a word tonight. They, they made a word for it, uh, the word baptize, which really doesn't translate it. It just adopts a Greek word into the English language. And so we, when you study that word, there's many different usages of the word uh, into, in, the, in, the, in the scriptures, but being placed or physically placed into the body of Christ is the teaching there. But Paul is saying in, in 1 Corinthians 12 there when he says, For by one spirit 
are we all baptized into one body, that he was sure that all the believers of the church at Corinth had been baptized. Although he says in the first chapter, I thank God, it's amazing that Paul says this, because he begins by the schisms in the, the church at Corinth. They had divided themselves into, under the headings of their favorite preachers. That sounds kind of modern day, doesn't it? We like Apollos. He's our man. If Apollos can't do it, Peter can. You know, if Peter, and on down the line, Apollos was an orator, uh, eloquent speaker, and some just said, I could just sit and listen to Apollos. He's like, it must have been like an Adrian Rogers. If he was quoting Mary Had a Little Lamb, you just go, oh, my, that's, that's the most amazing thing I've ever heard. It's just the golden tone, luscious, velvety words coming out of his mouth. No matter what he said, it's just if he said it, it was beautiful. And then there was Peter. Bless God, he told them exactly what they needed to hear. That prophet that came to town, you'll know how I stand and what I feel before I leave here tonight. And some just said, give it to him, Peter. That's the way we like it. And they, they'd divide themselves up, and they thought, that's how you... And Paul said, I am so glad that I baptized none of you except, uh, he says, except uh, Crispus and Gaius. You remember who they were? Crispus was the leader of the synagogue there at Corinth where Paul came to preach, where they got thrown out of, went next door and started the church. But Crispus, amazingly, after all of that turmoil and problems, Crispus was gloriously converted. And so Paul said, the only two I baptized were Crispus and Gaius, uh, those first and early converts at, 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 uh, at Corinth. And now if salvation is secured by baptism, Paul would have certainly tried to baptize every one of them personally. He would have been so compelled that that was the way of getting them saved that he would have. But he said, I only baptized two of you, though he labored there and served there in the church. Uh, and certainly if baptism was the means of salvation, he would have approached it in a different way. When he says, I thank the Lord that I only baptized two of you be accrediting to me your salvation and uh, they were so schismatic there or at least he would have tried to baptize a large number of them but the question arises the question comes then why did the, the lord give this particular commandment and leave this ordinance to his church to be practiced until he comes why is it so important why is it so compelling and why this particular humbling public display now sometimes in the scripture if again we have to be careful here if we were thinking of ways to identify ourselves with the lord uh, that we might would have thought of something else and so we think of why this humbling uh symbol that's done publicly we many of us were saved in, in private without anyone seeing or hearing or knowing our Lord told Nicodemus that the Spirit's work is an inner, private, personal thing. It will become obvious all true believers will identify themselves openly with the Lord's people. But the work, the converting work, is in secret. Just as the, the conception of a, a baby in the mother's womb is, it later becomes obvious and a baby is born. But, and the Lord gives that whole analogy of the new birth by, by giving that, that analogy of, of the first birth or the physical birth. And so our conversion is a private, inner matter, but baptism is such a public uh, matter and with, that, with, with others seeing it before the eyes of others. Why? Before we look at, at the picture of what baptism represents, I want us to see some practical things about this commandment. And so we'll start with that before we go to the other. For, for one thing, I want us to notice that the baptism and the ordinance of baptism and followers of Christ obeying in this particular command helps the, the convert, the believer themselves individually, to give an open testimony of the very private matter of conversion. We've already mentioned it is a private inner working of the heart when the heart is turned in repentance toward the Lord Jesus Christ and we find him as Lord and Savior. It makes a, a big impression upon the candidate and upon his heart and mind and it makes an impression upon the witnesses of this sacred ordinance. There is joy and gratitude in one professing their faith for the Lord 
and, 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 and doing what this, this humble ride that I am following in the very footsteps of my Lord by being obedient to him. And it aids in giving that, that believer assurance and a, a particular blessing of what has taken place within and what that convert has vowed to the Lord in private has now become a very beautiful and open thing. Again, not unlike the sacred love that it was birth in secret between a man and a woman and a very precious and the love letters and the sweet nothings whispered and, and the realization that you're the one for me and they commit their, themselves to each other in private and their, give their hearts to one another. Well, there will come a time in some way, no matter how simple, be it before a judge or in the pastor's parlor or whatever or in, in a church service, where they openly confess before others, no matter how small the group may be, this is the one that I've chosen and I'm willingly and gladly pledging myself to this one. That private, sacred thing has now become something very precious and open and is a, has a further blessing not only for them, but for others who, who witness it. And, and weddings here are a very precious and, and, and beautiful thing, and we, we praise the Lord for them and encourage those, those Christian weddings. So there's a joy and a gratitude there. Uh, they're not ashamed. The, the candidate is not ashamed to own his Lord openly any more than a bride or a bridegroom is ashamed uh, to be married before a pastor or a justice of the peace or, or someone. You know, that, that open, that private love is willing to be made known and that, that pledge to the other is said publicly, no matter how haltingly or whispered or whatever it may be, those vows are still given. It gives the convert, then, a way, our Lord is designed, of announcing to the world, I am my Lord's and he is mine. He is my, I gladly take him as ruler and Lord and Savior of my life. But not only that, not only does it help that convert announce publicly, I am now a follower of Jesus Christ, something that has taken place in the heart in a private way. But, but secondly, as mentioned, not only is the believer helped, but the whole congregation that witnesses that profession of faith publicly is helped and blessed as well. You see, the Lord has designed that for his church to be strengthened in that way. As the Lord's Supper, as we participate in the Lord's Supper, keeps Calvary ever before us. And I think it's important that the ordinances of the church that are so sacred to us are always on public display and remind us that, that, that the Lord's ways, these things that he has given to us, that's why we keep the Lord's table here and the baptistry so prominent to remind us of these ordinances. Even when we're not publicly participating of them, we look there and know the Lord's table and the, the baptistry speak of these sacred ordinances that the Lord has given to us. They're teaching ordinances. They're, they preach a message silently and audibly to us. But as we participate in the Lord's Supper, and it points our hearts to Calvary. So baptism keeps conversion before us, that glorious, miraculous work of the Spirit in the heart, salvation. We're reminded each time someone follows the Lord in believer's baptism that salvation of souls is what we're about. That's why we've been left here. Remember that our text, go ye, that's a command, is it? That's not a suggestion. If you get around to it, maybe one day you might think about telling somebody somewhere. No. Our Lord says unequivocally, you go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, we know that those, those apostles there could not physically go into all the world. So in that command, our Lord saw the multiplying of, of disciples until the gospel, this one told that one, it would be spread through all the wor world, mouth by one mouth to the next, by one preacher to the next, by one soul winner to the next. Go ye into all the world and preach, herald the gospel to every creature, baptizing them. He tells us to do that very thing teaching them to observe all things whatsoever 
I have commanded you uh, to do. So this keeps it before us, that it's the goal and the effort of all that we do in the New Testament church and brings great glory to our Savior when, when souls are converted. That's what we pray for. In every prayer meeting, in every service, do we not ask the Lord, save the lost, turn their hearts to you, bring about repentance and faith. And it reminds us every time we see someone follow the Lord in baptism that the work of making disciples, of converts and disciples, and to teach them the Lord's commandments is our duty and our responsibility and our joy. It places evangelism up front and before the church. It's always on display. It's always before our hearts and mind. At a baptism service, it's always a blessing. It helps the church as a whole. It helps the individual. It helps the church. But third, I want us to notice that believers' baptism is a strong witness, a strong witness to unbelievers. Because those who attend a baptism service, something is being said, whether the pastor or the, the, says it or the individual says it or not. I mean, it draws a line, a line of demarcation, a line of distinction between those who are the Lord's and those who are not. It's almost as uh, Joshua of old saying, choose you this day whom you'll serve. And when you see someone doing that, they've chosen, haven't they? Just when you come to a wedding and that groom, his knees knocking, you know, hoping he gets the words out right, uh, says, bye, bye, do, you know. Uh, we, don't, we don't fault the groom. We just rejoice that he's standing up there doing that. And we're thinking, oh, praise the Lord. And the, and the bride blushing and saying, I, I take this man to be my, my wife. It, it's a blessing to all who are there and it shows us now these now are off limits it's what it ought to say this man and this woman are each other's they're off the market okay and when a believer follows the lord in baptism what is it saying to the world they're the lord's they're on the lord's side who is on the lord's side who will serve the king that's what they're saying gladly and willingly what a strong statement that makes and there'll be aunts and uncles no doubt and grandparents and maybe next door neighbors or a school teacher, people will come and witness that who may not believe in the gospel, who may not even believe in them following the Lord in baptism, but it says something to them. The Holy Spirit uses these ordinances that He's given to us to speak to hearts. It's like going to a funeral. How could you look at a casket and say, without thinking, you know, one of these days, that's going to be me. If you have any mind at all, you think of that when you go to a funeral. When you hear that someone has passed away. I, I was amazed the other, other day. I, I found out another classmate. Of course, I'm not as young as I think I am. But I keep hearing of people I went to, grew up with and played with, and, you know, shot slingshots with and windows and other things with. And, and I'm not going to go into all of the, the mega confessional service, but the, who've, gone, who've died. And it, it, it always brings your own mortality before your eyes. And when you see someone openly following the Lord in baptism, it speaks. There are those who attend church, they hear the gospel, and they're convinced of its truths, but they're just continual attenders. They never really act upon it. They only go so far. The book of Hebrews is written to these people. And he says, go on, complete Go on to, to, to perfection, and, but some never move beyond that. Just, they just come, and they are confronted by the gospel preaching and by baptisms of people who have come to Christ, and it is a bold and convincing testimony. It is a convicting, loud and clear message to the candidates, as I've mentioned, the unsaved family and friends who have uh, witnessed their obedience of their loved one going through the watery grave of baptism. It causes everyone to stop and consider their own standing and their own testimony before the Lord. As I mentioned, baptism draws a sharp, clear division between those who are willing to own the Lord clearly and publicly and those who will not, who absolutely refuse to follow him. It shows that the gospel requires obedience and a willingness to openly love and a, and a loyalty uh, for our Lord who openly suffered shame and humiliation for us. Now, admittedly, getting wet in public is a humiliating thing. But it's nothing compared to the humiliation our Lord went through. 
Think about being stripped in public, beaten and spat upon and slapped in the face and mocked and made fun of. There's nothing we could do to to offset that in any way, but when he says, do this, do what I've done for you, follow in my steps, who wouldn't willingly love to stand up and say, he is my Lord. I will show others in this way that he is mine. There was no open, willing, glad choice. We think about those who, uh, I mentioned again, those who practice infant baptism. It misses the whole point, doesn't it? We've, all, we've, we've come across that a candidate is saying, I own the Lord. I, I choose him. I have, I have come to him in repentance and faith. He is my Lord. I have been saved. That's what baptism is saying. A baby can't say that. A baby has no choice in the matter. They that gladly receive the Lord. Peter Masters was writing that no baby can say that. These babies that we dedicate to the Lord and pray that the Lord will save, they have no say so in the matter. They don't gladly receive it. Some of them pitch a fit while I'm praying over them. And I always pray, please, Lord, help them not to do it. It, it makes it look like they don't like their pastor, you know. And I, I pray they'll stay sweet and kind and, 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 and pacified. Uh, I always tell the mothers, feed them, make them full and all that when, when you get them up here so that they won't cry. But a baby, you know, that baby doesn't, he's not gladly receiving anything. But, and so you can't say that that's a candidate for baptism. It doesn't speak of, of the death of a baby's old life, does it? It does the opposite. And the, the baptism of infants sends out the message that the life of Christ is entered into by religious rites, not by a new birth or a conscious conversion experience. Baptism says that the church is a committed family of regenerate people. And of passing from an old life of sin to a new life in Christ. But we ask the question, why the total immersion of the candidate in water? Which, by the way, although we've not examined that word in detail, we've mentioned that it is a transliterated word, an adopted word from the Greek language into the English language. But it does mean to immerse or to bury or to plunge into, to totally submerge into something else a new environment, a new place. But why, why the total immersion of the candidate in water? Why that mode, uh, that method? And why did the, the, the Lord give the, the, the immersion uh, as the, the method? I believe that the picture here illustrates four things, as we'll use in the latter part of the message this evening. It pictures obedience, baptism does. It pictures forgiveness. It pictures a new life. And it pictures identification with Christ. Now, we've touched on these just a bit, but I want us to look at them in just a little more detail here. First, that picture, again, of obedience. The call of salvation is a call to come. And we who herald the gospel say, come to the Lord. Don't come to us. Don't come to a particular uh, religion, but come to Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Come all ye that weary are weary and are heavy laden. And Jesus says, and I will give you rest. Come follow me, he says. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And the last great invitation of the Bible in Revelation 22, verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. The Holy Spirit and the bride is who? That's us, the church. Don't you know those believers, as the Apostle Paul, I believe the writer of the Hebrews, says, as a great great cloud of witnesses, don't you know if we could just pull back the veil of the unseen, unseen and see, tear upon tear of the redeemed of all the past gathered there in glory tonight. What do you think their message to us would be? If they could send one message back this way, if we could pull back the curtains of eternity and hear just one word from them, what would it be? Come, come, come. Come to Jesus. Come to this place. Come to where we are. Join our band. Step, fall into the, follow the captain of our faith. Oh, it's worth it. Whether you're beheaded, whether you die penniless, whether you die in a potter's field or a martyr's grave or unknown, unsung, come, look at our glory. Look at the glory of this place. Oh, come, come. We call sinners to repentance. 
It is the great call and the great responsibility of those who know the Lord to urge others to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? It is our command. There's no other way. It's not adopt a philosophy or try a religion. It is come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. Stop. Consider your ways. You have sinned against a thrice holy God. Infinite, holy, wise, creator, sustainer of the universe, who you owe your very life and being in every cell of your body. Bow before him, own him as Lord and Savior. Does he not have a right for us to command sinners to repent and believe on him? Turn to him. Turn from your sin. Oh, if the bridge was out here, uh, down the road here, if a great uh, gulf was there, and all of a sudden a, a sinkhole as big as Jefferson County, wouldn't somebody stand when they got there first and wave their hands and say, Stop! Stop! Go another way! And that's what we do. We warn, repent, turn around, detour, go another direction. You're on the wrong road. You're headed for destruction. Turn from your sin. That's the gospel. That's the message of the gospel. In the privacy and the secrecy of your heart right now, turn to the Lord and then we tell them to follow Him. Turn from your direction, but follow Him. Can I tell you, He will never lead you astray. He will never lead you down a path that you'll regret. He will never, never, never be untrue to you. You will find in Him a faithful, keeping, loving Savior. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. The dearest one on earth to you, though they never want to, will fail you. The best of men will fail you. There's not a person in this room who is, who is infallible who will not fail you at some point. But I can recommend you to a Savior you'll never be disappointed in. Disappointed myself a million times. I have never been disappointed in Jesus Christ. He has done all he said he would do. Openly, gladly, willingly follow your Lord in this public profession of your faith in Him as Savior, testifying that you have passed from death to life. Someone may wonder, why do Christians submit to such an humbling ordinance so publicly? Peter Masters writes, why do they choose to go through this simple and inconvenient act? It allows for no individuality or freedom of expression, nor is it varied to allow for one's class or race or wealth. It's a great levelizer. Nor is it developed in form from one century to the next. They seem to do it just because they believe that God has told them to. And he writes, that is precisely the point. The message of baptism. Baptism removes all pride out of the matter, doesn't it? All self-will. And it removes the idea that we can get to heaven in many ways or any old thing will do. But secondly, baptism is a picture of our forgiveness. Not only is it a picture of obedience, but it pictures what has taken place in the heart. The inward, the reality of an inward work. That our sin has been removed Oh, happy day that fixed my choice on thee, my Savior and my God. Well, may this glowing heart rejoice until its raptures all abroad. Happy day, happy day. And it shows publicly that cleansing from sin that took place in the heart. That sin has been removed that once kept us, divided us from God. We are saying, I have been washed in the sacrificial blood of the Lamb that cleanses from all sin, entirely by His mercy and His grace, and this symbolizes it. Total immersion speaks of total forgiveness, doesn't it? A total burial. Now let me ask you, and I'm not trying to be cute here tonight, but can anyone envision if we go to Elmwood Cemetery uh, tomorrow and say we're going to bury our dear departed brother and the, the undertaker after all is said and done comes 
and sprinkles some dirt on the, the coffin and says, now you may return to your cars and go home. And that's, could anyone in any way conceive of that as being burying, the sprinkling of that, that casket with the, uh, some, some dirt? Uh, could that be considered uh, a burial? That doesn't illustrate a burial at all, does it? How could sprinkling water on someone picture the total work of the regenerating of heart and cleansing from sin? God removes all guilt, all condemnation. I want to remind you, church, there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. All of it's been gone, cleansed. God removes all the guilt and the condemnation when he saves us. And our baptism illustrates that. But thirdly, baptism is not only pictures our obedience and pictures our forgiveness, but baptism in water shows to all who witness it that a great and total change has taken place in our conversion. That's what we're saying. That's what it speaks of. That I have been changed, I have been converted, radically and gloriously changed from what I was to what I am now. And everyone we see in the New Testament that was saved was saying that very, that is exactly what happened. Just think of the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 9, he was on his way to Damascus and he was gloriously converted when he came find that he was arrested. He was trying to arrest others, but the Holy Spirit arrested him, did he not? That's what the Holy Spirit does. He comes with all the power of heaven and arrests us and takes us up spiritually by the nap of the, the soul, the lapels of the soul, and says, you're wrong. You're lost. You're a sinner. And you'll die and spend eternity in hell. And then we're alarmed. Wasn't Paul alarmed? Lord, this one who did not believe in Christ as the Messiah begins by calling him Lord. Adonai, sovereign, you ruler over me. Lord, who art thou, Lord? And then in verse 6, Lord, what will thou have me to do? And then the Lord deals with, with, with Saul. And Saul goes to a house and, and God sends someone to instruct Saul more perfectly. And he sends a man that, by the name of Ananias who was scared to do it to start with. And you can imagine, wouldn't you be scared to go disciple? What if that was the Lord told you to go disciple uh, an ISIS leader who had all of a sudden said he was now wanting to become a follower of Jesus Christ? You might would have some questions about that. And the church was saying, ah, I don't know about this. How could this guy's been arresting people and dragging them in chains to, to prison? And the Lord had to convince Ananias, he's one of mine. I've saved him. He's changed. You go tell him. You go minister to him. What a transformation. And then finally in verse 18, Paul follows the Lord in baptism after he's been gloriously converted. Changed. What a transformation. Sometimes people refer to their conversion as a Damascus Road conversion. Now, admittedly, many of you and most of us were not in that same category. And please don't be intimidated if your conversion does not measure up to that. Hardly any 8-year-old or 12-year-old would be able to say that they had the experience of Paul. And, and that's not the part of it that we're emphasizing, the great sins and crimes that he committed but think of the change that took place. He was headed in this direction. He was totally, what a picture of repentance. He, he had his, everything was upended and rearranged. And now this is the Lord. This is the Messiah whom he had spent all of his career rejecting and trying to, to refute. Lord, what will thou have me to do? What a transformation from hating and persecuting all those who name the name of Christ to calling him Lord and to submitting, humbling uh, to him and being baptized. Can you imagine that proud Pharisee of Pharisees, trained at the feet of Gamaliel? If Paul's education could have been badges, they would have hung to the floor. You know, all of the, the credentials and the training, he was just draped in it. And, and to admit that he was wrong, that he had found the, the Savior. And, and submitted uh, to him. What an amazing thing. But all who come to Christ are saying the same thing. And all who willingly submit to, to baptism are saying with Paul and, and the Ethiopian eunuch and all the rest, he is my Lord. 
and I am his. It illustrates, Paul illustrates in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Baptism depicts the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. Paul there in Romans chapter 6 uh, tells the Romans, Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Baptism pictures our, our new life experience. Paul is saying, don't you remember what your baptism illustrates? He was telling the Romans who had, who had gotten into some wrong teaching, who thought you could sin and God could get great glory out of it. He said, oh, wait, what? What are you saying? What shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? People, that's the, what the church is teaching today. Just do whatever you want to do. It's antinomianism. It's not new. Paul is screaming at the Romans, what are you saying? Away with the thought. You've got to be kidding. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's what he's saying there. What? Don't you remember the illustration of your baptism? He takes them back to correct their erroneous, off-the-wall thinking. You remember what you said when you followed the Lord in baptism, that it showed to you and to all those who witnessed that Christ has done for you and what has happened in your heart and in your life, that you're dead to sin and alive to Christ. It pictures death to a former sinful lifestyle. And now I'm on a new course of life, a surrendered life, a life where he's Lord and I'm his subject willingly and gladly. Old things are gone and all things have become new. But fourthly, baptism identifies us with Christ as our sovereign Lord and Savior. We now are his. We belong to him. We stand with him. We follow him. We are in him. His life is lived through us. His Holy Spirit indwells these frail bodies, these earthly tents. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. He is ours and we're his. Uh, I could not stand with him in Pilate's hall. And if we read the gospel records, we, 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 we feel so sorry, for lack of better words, for our Lord, when no one would stand with him. Those men that he handpicked and called and, and poured his life into, every one of them forsook him. No one stood with him. Even his father turned from him, and he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Though I often would wish I could go back and, and would like to think that I would stand up and against the crowd and say, He is the Lord. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. I could not shout above the cries and the jeers, Yes, He is Jesus Christ. Yes, he is the Lord. I'm gladly one of his disciples. Peter may deny you, but I'm his. And he is mine. I can't go back and do that. I doubt that I would, even if I could be transported in time. I'm afraid my voice would blend with that mad, mass mob of a crowd away with him. We will have no king but Caesar. But I can tell the world by this ordinance just that. I can say I believe in him. He is the Savior. He is the Savior of Chris Lamb. He is the Lord of Chris Lamb. I gladly, willingly, publicly identify myself with him. I believe he's the Lord. I believe that he's the only way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh to the Father but by him. And I will, to the best of my ability, follow him till I die. We follow our Lord's own example. Who, by the way, when he came and submitted to John's baptism, it wasn't to have his sin washed away, was it? He who was sinless had no need to have his sin washed away. And so... 
salvation is not washed away in the watery grave of baptism. Our sins are not washed away there. Our Lord was sinned in no way. He, Matthew chapter 3 verse 13 tells us, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John, which, by the way, not to split hairs, but if John was just going to sprinkle people, he wouldn't need to be in the Jordan doing it, would he? I mean, it really wouldn't matter where he was, but the Holy Spirit makes it very clear that he was at Jordan, the Jordan River, and he comes unto John to be baptized of him. And John forbade him, saying, I have need, I have need, we all have need of Jesus Christ, don't we? I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? For a moment there, even John said, how can this be? I mean, I know you're the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. You are the sinless one, the sacrifice for sin. How could it be that you should be baptized? Now, all these people who've repented and are believing on, on the coming of the Savior, they need to be baptized. And they need to show the world that they're sincere about it. But you, I need you to, be, you to baptize me. Which, by the way, the Bible doesn't tell us that Jesus did baptize John. I need to be baptized of you. And you come to me. And Jesus answering unto him said, Suffer it to be so, allow this to be, take place. For thus it becometh us, you and me, John, at this particular point in history, to fulfill all righteousness. Why was the Lord Jesus Christ baptized? As we've mentioned, he has no sin. He has no need to have his sins washed away. He is the sinless Savior. He tells us that it was necessary for him to fulfill all that was required of him. Hebrews 2 verse 17 says, Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. He condescended to become one of us and to experience what we experience it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren in everything, in all things, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Our Lord was a perfect example in every way. He never asked us to go where he did not go. He never asked us to do what he did not first willingly do himself. On Calvary, he was perfectly vetted, wasn't he? We're about to enter that great political season. I say great in a very guarded way, but you know what I mean. We have to vet this, this one, improve this one. Are they what they say they are? And everything that they've ever said or done, supposedly, will be you know, investigated and brought out and examined and brought to the light of day. Uh, for, well, we won't go there. We're trying to teach about repentance and faith and getting mad all over again but our lord was perfectly proved that he was the savior by his birth fulfilling every old testament prophecy by his sinless life no charge could be brought against him by his works Never a man spake like this man, and no one could do the things he did, the creative miracles that only God could do. Time and time again, the people said, only God could do the things that, that you're doing. So he perfectly proved that he was who he said he was. He could read minds. He could steal storms. He could change just plain water into wine. He could raise a man wrapped up dead in a, in a, a grave several days out who's already began rotting and restore all the trans uh, reverse the rotting and the decomposing process back to is to, to totally vital and active men who who could not walk and we could go on and on and on but what what he did demons cast out that no one could deal with he commanded authority he spoke as one who had authority everything he said was true and they could not corner him except in their own misguided way, an untruthful way. He was appointed to be the Savior and the leader of his redeemed people. He has led the way, hasn't he? 
We follow the captain of our faith. We follow the nail-pierced footprints of one who has led the way from eternity past. Can we not trust him to lead us to eternity future? This one who spoke the worlds into existence. Oh, how could you not commit yourself to one like this? He has led the way in all things. And in all things, he is the perfect example. He led the way through the watery grave of baptism, prophesying his coming death, burial, and resurrection. He pictured that. He identified in every way with us. And we should likewise identify ourselves with him in the way he has prescribed for us to do it. In baptism, we tell the world, I have been saved by the marvelous, matchless, expensive grace of Jesus Christ, though free to me, the precious blood. You were not bought with corruptible, perishable things like silver or gold, but with the spotless blood of the Lamb of God. We say that when we follow Him. I have been saved by the marvelous, free grace of Jesus Christ. I am His, and He is mine. I gladly submit to Him fully, openly, and unashamedly. We here identify with our Lord and with the rest of His redeemed people. Not only do we put ourselves under His authority, we gladly identify ourselves with other believers. We've entered into a spiritual family of those who have followed Him likewise, the bride of Christ. Well, may the Lord bless his word and cause those who have been saved to follow their Lord in his blessed example if they have not. And may the Lord make this ordinance very precious to us as we study it uh, even further. Now, Lord, this is your word. We pray that you would use it in the way appointed. Lord, we desire to be like you in every area of our lives. We have this deep, supreme desire to be like Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that you would uh, help and perfect this in the life of each one. Those in our, our church here who may be saved, but they have not uh, followed you openly and made this confession before others, I pray that you would show them. And may they be willing to submit to this divine ordinance, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.